Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Nick Muir. <laughs> Jamming already. Hello, I'm Nick Muir, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the House Culture podcast. I'm your host and managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Thanks for joining us, streaming or downloading, but most importantly, listening. You should know the drill by now, but if this is your first time tuning in, where have you been? We at House Culture are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. You can get your daily fix of all things house culture on our Instagram feed at housecultureNet. But as you can see with this podcast, we've already built up a hefty back catalogue of interviews with iconic characters from the scene. We've all been happy to sit down for a candid chat to tell us how this thing called house music has shaped their life. In this episode, we chat with Nick Muir, a titan of the progressive house genre, and also one half of Bedrock, alongside a guy called John Digweed. As you'll hear in this podcast, Nick's approach to production comes from a place of deep knowledge. Because I have been trained and I have been schooled in it and I can do various things, it's kind of more interesting to me to do something which is out of that realm, really. He had some real epiphanies once he discovered dance music. I remember going out to some of the early parties and what occurred to me about the music was the fact that it was going straight from the head of the guy who produced it out of the speakers. What it was like hearing his own track feature in an iconic 90s film. When they told us that it was going to be used in this in a film and that it was a British film, we didn't set very much store by that. But of course it turned out to be train spotting. And the secrets behind the creation of one of Bedrock's most recognisable tunes. Heaven Sent's got that big tune, that big melody in it, and I remember layering it and layering it with different sounds and sampling that and then putting another synth on top of that and then just making it sound as big as I possibly could. I remember John saying, it's bigger than four and angel. So, turn it up and get ready to spend the next hour or so in the studio with Nick Muir. House Culture. 
House Culture. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for inviting us, House Culture, into your your studio to do this podcast. It's it's much appreciated. Uh, obviously, you're a very talented producer and DJ in the world of dance music and progressive house. Obviously, obviously. Um, but before all of that happened for you, how and where did your passion for music first come from? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a long history now, Matt. Um, I've been uh, playing music for all my life really we had a piano at home and uh, when I was you know three four I started going there and picking out chords and my mum who was a singer a trained singer she recognized that I was drawn to this and was able to pick out stuff from a young age so she got me started on lessons when I was five and so I did that whole thing yeah I did the classical training thing all the grades up piano and um, then when what happens when you're about 15, 16, you start to get interested in other things. Or Well, I mean, I did anyway. I was exposed to a lot of music. I've got two elder brothers. One's 12 years older and the other's 10 years older. And um, they were bringing stuff home. My elder brother was big Beatles fan. And my uh, the middle brother of the three of us, he was more into soul music and that kind of thing. But they were both pretty into it. So I was getting from you know being a tiny boy I was getting all this uh, music being played all the time and uh, I was interested anyway so I was just getting you know exposed to a lot of music at a very young age and uh, when I got to my teens then you know I was just I was really obsessed by musical instruments really I remember I had the Bell's guitar catalogue which I used to take to school and just look at while I was supposed to be listening to the geography lesson I'd have that underneath the desk deciding which guitar I was going to have which amp which amp would go with which guitar I was my brother had a band as well when when I was like five or six and they used to rehearse in our front room and this for me was like absolute it was magical totally magical the sparkly drum kit and the, the bass guitar with the long neck and I remember being completely entranced by the whole thing and so when I was in my mid-teens I you know started playing guitar and bass and started playing in bands when I was at school and so that's you're how play, it all you're playing all, all of the instruments which one in particular was the one you were more leaning towards at that time well I when I started playing bands when I was 16 I was playing the bass as it goes I always played guitar I got my first guitar when I was about eight or nine and I can kind of play the guitar but I don't know I, I never felt as confident on it as I did the piano because I'd always been I'd been brought up playing the piano but I was playing bass in bands I mean I couldn't afford keyboards so I suppose I might have done that if I could afford to buy myself a little electric piano or something but somebody needed a bass player and uh, I figured it wouldn't be too hard to play the bass so I went and got one and started playing and you know had a great time and played bass quite a lot actually until uh, when I was in college I did music at uh, university like uh, at Cardiff and it was like a theoretical and history music degree, that type of thing, rather than performing. But I always had my bass, my Fender bass, and uh, played in bands all the way through college. And that led to uh, you wanting a career in music? I never really thought about it, to be honest. I mean, when I was <laughs> at college, yeah, there was, I was, I remember wandering around most of the time completely out of my head, actually. Maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> it's fine. But uh, I got through the degree okay got you know did it passed it and then it was kind of a bit of a shock to me when that when that all came I was totally unprepared I thought oh okay that's all finished now I'm supposed to go and make a living am I <laughs> <laughs> so uh 
didn't really know what to do. I, I, so I moved up when I left college when I was 21, moved up to London and um, I worked, I got a job with a music publisher, United Artists. I worked for them for six months in the office there. I mean, it's office work. Okay, it's to do with music, but it was indistinguishable from any other mm-hmm. office job as far as I can tell. While I was there, I tried, um, I applied to go get into the BBC. They used to run a a course called the Assistant Studio Managers Course for Graduates, and I did all right. I got I got past the first interview, but then you they give you a something they call a board, which is in front of five people where they ask you slightly more in depth questions. I I was completely unprepared for that. I had nobody. If somebody had given me some kind of heads up as to what I was supposed to do in that interview or the fields that I should have covered, I think I, I think they probably would have taken me because I could tell the guy who initially interviewed me thought I was okay, but I didn't get in there. And uh, basically, when that happened, I thought to myself, "Well, I'm just going to see if I can pick up some work playing around." Because we, we'd moved up to London. I lived in Hereford, mm-hmm. the in the West Country. Well, I moved there when, my, when I was 14. My parents moved out. Anyway, my mate of mine and I we moved back up to London. I worked for this music publisher for six months, and the, after that, as I say, I uh, started just doing all auditions and used to buy the melody maker and look in the back of there and see who was looking for anybody who was looking for somebody to play i hooked up with a bunch of people that i knew from college friends of friends and uh, we were playing in pubs and that kind of thing like working men's clubs terrible music but you know we were gigging and um so when i eventually as i say i didn't get into the bbc then um i first proper gig i had was with um a guy called jake burns and there was this punk band called stiff little fingers mm-hmm. back in the well they were late 70s early 80s and he split stiff little fingers and they started a band called jake burns and the big wheel put an advert in melody maker i went and auditioned and they said okay you're in so that was a four-piece band me and jake and the drummer and bass player and uh we did um a tour and we did a session made of ale for john peel i remember and uh, what happened to that was they couldn't agree terms with the record company. I guess it was, uh, you know, they were after some, they just couldn't figure a deal out between them, really. And so when they told me that they weren't going to, you know, they were going to suspend manoeuvres for six months, I just thought, oh, no, what am I going to do for six months? You know, this was like May. And they yeah. said, well, we're going to start again and see what we can do in September. But I kind of knew that it was, um, it just had the feeling that it wasn't quite going to work. So, oh man, I did all sorts of crazy things. I, I, I phoned up completely out of the blue. I phoned up somebody I'd met who was an agent and uh, I said, who's looking for a piano player? And they said, well, how did you know about this? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, well, there's this French guy, Johnny Halliday, like rock and roll. He's looking for a piano player and he's over in London on Monday go down. No so I went down there again, did the audition. You know, I mean, thing is, I could play pretty well mm. and... I did this thing where I would learn the first 16 or 32 bars of really difficult classical pieces. And so when they asked you, well, can you play classical? I'd just sort of rip out a bit of the <laughs> Chopin's revolutionary study or something. Yeah. Of course, I couldn't play it all the way through. I'd, you know, it would have been taking me years. Yeah. But I could get the first 32 bars down and they, and they kind of go, oh, well, okay, fine. We'll have you. Amazing. So I went over to um, France and did a tour with Johnny. We played in um, we played in Paris for six months. Uh, how long was it actually? Three months residency at this uh, venue in Paris called the Zenith, which is like you know 
it's sort of Wembley Arena size, but he was such a big star that he could play. He played three months, six nights a week at eight thousand seat venue. You know? Wow, mad, really. <laughs> and I was only like I said, I was only twenty three, twenty four. Yeah. So I kind of thought, oh, this is good. This, this is, is it. <laughs> this is how life is then. <laughs> but uh, I uh, anyway, that that was that was really brilliant, and uh, I made some good friends over there, and I, I uh, enjoyed working in France and living the French lifestyle. It's excellent fun. And what year was that? That would have been 84, 85. Yeah. yeah. So we did that three months in the Zenith and then we did another three-month tour around France. And then I came back from there, came back to London. And uh, I started at that point to try and write a bit more. You see, of course, we didn't have, you know, computers weren't in general use at that point so what you did was you went and did demos in eight track studios with people you wrote your thing i've worked with a couple of singers and tried to um you know just get something going and got a bit more used to working in a studio at the same time what i was doing was playing piano every lunchtime at langan's brasserie which is up in mayfair again that was one of those things i I rang i I thought to myself how can i make a bit of extra money i thought maybe i could play piano in a restaurant yeah and so i thought where would i like to play and I thought Langan's Brasserie and again I rang them up this doesn't happen to me now but I rang <laughs> I rang them up and said I hear you're looking for a piano player you know cheeky as you like and they said how did you know we were looking for a piano player <laughs> and I'm like oh well uh, uh, word gets around so I went up and you know I used to play there a couple of hours every lunchtime so Monday through Friday ideal really it yeah. just meant that I could keep myself ticking over while I tried to uh, write some bits of material so you're so you're living the life of a lounge room lizard almost in Mayfair and does this lead to kind of a life as a session musician that that that's sort of what happened the guy who produced our initial recordings for um Jake Burns' band there's a bloke called John Porter and John was um, he had a big influence on me he was a fairly major figure he produced uh, the Smiths first couple of albums you know he'd played with uh, he had been in Roxy Music and he'd played in Eric Clapton's band and played with Steely Dan and he was a dude you know still is I haven't seen him for years he had a big influence on me and um <laughs> I remember it was the dope smoking that got me. It was like smoking dope at that point was part of the job description. And I can remember turning up to the studio with John and his engineer, Kenny. And the first thing they would do would roll a massive cone, you know, and get absolutely, well, they seemed to be able to function okay, but that's just how they worked. You know, they would get stoned and they would record the band. And of course, I was quite, you know, up for that, really. And uh, (laughs) so that way of working and that attitude towards working i mean a lot of a lot of the music that you hear is that your favorite music has been made under the influence of various different types of substance so like i say it seemed to be a way of life to these people so i enthusiastically joined in why not but um john uh was producing a band called fire next time who were signed to polydor which was uh, the lead singer was a guy called James Maddox. And they uh, Polydor had a lot invested in Fire Next Time. And I did a session for them, which John called me in to do. And uh, that worked really well. So I ended up joining that band. And we toured and made an album in Rockfield. Um, and that was really good. They were kind of like um, Jim sang... Uh, 
he was left wing kind of agit pop type character he was a big fan of Bruce Springsteen Bob Dylan but did it in a more slightly more British kind of a way and so my role in that was piano and Hammond organ and that's what I ended up doing quite a lot of sessions around London playing the piano and the Hammond and that type of American type of sound Bill Payne Steve Naive who was the keyboard player in the Elvis Costello and his tractions it's that kind of thing you yeah, know yeah. and so I played with um, Fire Next Time as they were called for the album and a tour then what happened on this timeline is that we supported a band called The Men They Couldn't Hang and The Men They Couldn't Hang are a um, kind of uh, folk punk I think they called them cow punk at the time they were a funny sort of a band great band I thought and we were on the bill supporting them you know their support band on the tour we'd bought onto their tour and um, I remember saying to them that I would, wouldn't mind joining their band it's a bit cheeky really now I can <laughs> think about it but um they seem to be up for it. So I ended up leaving Fire Next Time and joining the men they couldn't hang. And we made a cu- I made a couple of albums with them and toured. We toured around the world. And they were good friends. They were a really good laugh, you know. Mm-hmm. It was excellent fun. And great band. I mean, they, they weren't um, flashy players or anything. And when I first joined them, I, I had no idea what to do. They figured they wanted a piano organ player, so I tried to fit in the best I can, but I didn't know what the hell was going on because they were totally unschooled. Yeah. And they would do weird things like the, the chorus would be in a totally different tempo to the verse. And, I, you know, at first I was thinking, well, you know, they're making all these mistakes, but they weren't making mistakes. There's, that's just how they did it. And as, so, as soon as I learned what they were doing, I kind of, oh, okay, it does make sense after all. Love that, though, the fact that that you have to kind of relearn what you're doing you know yeah. they're not uh, they're not following any particular set of rules yeah but it makes sense to them yeah they're just playing together that's what makes it exciting as well i suppose that's right and different and uh, even though they're not schooled in any way the fact is they all knew what they wanted to do and what they didn't talk about it ever discuss it they just played yeah and uh, because they had nobody telling them it was wrong then they just made it right which was a kind of a lesson to me really I like you know as you say that's what makes it exciting and that's what makes the music have its own personality and gives it something which of its own and something which is organically arrived at and that's been that's been a you know a recurring theme over the years yeah because I have been trained and I have been schooled in it and I can do various things, it's kind of more interesting to me to do something which is out of that realm, really. I mean, yeah, having that training and that basis, I suppose, it yeah, it helps you have that grounding and then explore the branches off of that, I suppose. And, and, and also I was able to, because I'm an ear player more, I can read music, uh, but it was never, I was never a fantastic reader. I, you know, I'm more like a, an ear player. So if I hear something, if I know the tune of it, I can normally reproduce it and do it in various different styles. So... I'm able to, uh, if somebody's doing something and there's some kind of sense into it somewhere, I can normally figure out what it is. Mm. I've been a, I've been a side man, really. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's kind of been my role throughout my career. Uh, to be a side man, you need to be able to tune into what the people who are standing out in front of you are doing and give them the correct sort of support. And I figure I'm, you know, I'm okay at that. Yeah. And I'm kind of still doing that with John, really. Yeah. It's, you know, John has no musical 
um, he's he's not a musician. John's a DJ. Yeah, and he's not particularly interested in the mechanics of music and how how it works. But he knows what he likes. He knows what he wants. He's always had that vision, and so I've been able to uh, help him realise it yeah. a bit in the productions that we do. Yeah, I mean, it's a, just that's a nice lead-in, actually. I suppose so. You, you're kind of in this world where it's all bass, guitar, guitar, piano, etc. Um, very analog, physical in that sense. Yeah. Um, how how did you first discover dance music, and and you know what was your journey into into that? Well, you see, that was a very specific period of time. I was playing with the men they couldn't hang and um, I remember the engineer that we were working with when we were making some demos said to me Nick you're a keyboard player why don't you go and have a look at um, one of these keyboards that you can play eight parts at once on and I'm thinking what are you talking about (laughs) and he's told me about uh, it was a unit called the Roland D110 I remember and you hook that up to your Atari computer via MIDI and then on the sequencer it's a crack copy of Cubase everybody had a crack copy of Cubase about 1989 so I I went and got myself a Roland D110 and an Atari computer and hooked it up I'm like oh you're joking this is amazing what's going on uh, and I always really liked sequencing anyway and I had a sequencer before just a very basic um, QX Yamaha sequencer which was like no power at all really except for the fact that you could write a sequence on it and sync it to tape and I'd done this once or twice um, in the mid 80s but when the Atari came about and the you know the boxes the multi-timbral synthesizers like the D110 that just took it up a notch and I realized I could program the drums and I could also program the bass and the keys and it just made a lot of sense to me I just loved the idea of being able to program the drums in particular because mm-hmm. uh, one thing that John Porter said to me was that it, the thing about musicians who uh, are doing what they do seriously is they have the sense of time it's not the fact that they have this particular technical ability although of course that comes into it but um, if you're making rhythmic contemporary music then if you've got that sense of time then that is what's going to help you to make something which sounds authentic legit the phrasing of it you can get and I figure I always had that feel that sense of time I kind of knew what he was talking about so having the computer which is really all about time it's all about sequencing, locking everything in. As soon as I got my hands on that, I don't know, I felt, you know, it did feel, felt like a bit of a homecoming, really. Yeah. Even though the technology was pretty new. Yeah. And the idea of being able to arrange the track, write the sequences, it was, you know, a bit of a revelation, really. Yeah. So I started that, but I mean, I didn't know, I didn't necessarily know too much about, you know, what was happening with Acid House. Yeah at the time 88 89 I kind of you know you've heard you heard stuff about it and I'd heard the music and I thought it sounded okay I thought it sounded uh, kind of the uh, to my ears it sounded a little bit um, you know basic a bit kind of um, hard to describe but I th- it didn't it didn't particularly draw me in at first because I thought it sounded so it sounded so basic to me because I hadn't gone out and listened to it on acid yeah. at that point <laughs> So I wasn't quite getting the the full uh, effect. But I remember going, um, so I had this, you know, rudimentary setup, the D110 and the Atari, and started getting another couple of bits and still working sessions. And I was making an album with the men they couldn't hang. And the producer was a guy called Pat Collier for that album. And Pat had had uh, success with the Wonder Stuff. And he had set himself up a studio by Old Street up in London called The Greenhouse. And what he was doing there was recording indie-type bands, Jesus and Mary Chain, Primal Scream, uh, that type of band. And yeah. 
wonder stuff as well of course but he had this whole premises and he could see that i was keen and so he said to me look I've got this studio up in London with a load of rooms and I've bought all these samplers. Do you want to come up and hang out and see if you can make them work? So I was like, oh, yes. So I went up there and got myself a little space in his studio and got in front of the sampler, the S1000 Akai, mm. with the Atari. And uh, I moved over to Creator Software, actually, which was um, another way of doing it. Do you remember Creator? It's a completely different way of doing it. Now Now they're all piano roll, which mm. means you have a... Oh, is it the one that goes down? Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's yeah, right. yeah. And you link patterns together. Yes. And uh, I think back to it now, I have no idea how I made that work but all those early tracks uh, early remixes with John and early stuff that I did on my own was done on Creator Mm. and uh, making the sampler work you know made my brain fry for about two months getting my head around it because I'm not you know I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed really but I've managed to get my head around it yeah and uh, managed to make it do what I wanted to do. So is this just messing around at this point, just seeing what the power of this stuff was? or Trying to learn what sampling was yeah. properly and trying to delve into how you would manipulate samples to do what you wanted them to do, you know, filter them up and down, yeah. loop stuff around at the end, just making, making uh, a sampler do what you wanted to do. Uh, at the same time, with a vague idea that there was some music happening along the lines of more technology-based music that was totally made on a computer and was for dancing. And that's about as much as I knew in 1989. Yeah. And then I started to try and get a bit closer. I remember going to, you remember the gardening club in Covent Garden? Yeah. I I think it might even have been before. But anyway, it was that's where the gardening club was. And I remember going up there and hearing some music which was slightly different to Acid House. It was like more Italian-type house music. Um, yeah. That early sort of like 1991, 90, yeah. kind of more richer harmonically and more musical sounding. And, uh, set, you know... Uh, amazing really I, I i was thinking well of course you can make music which has got more to it than just beats and acid lines yeah and i realized that you know there there was something to to be done in that area and something that was very musical and was but also really dynamic sounding i mean it was all new man yeah. you know what i mean this yeah. was like the idea of putting that whacking great kick drum in it was like something that had kind of sprung out of nowhere yeah and the the sound systems as well the physical sound systems to replicate that sound to have it like thunder through your body absolutely i mean it's a brilliant idea play records very loud through a sound system and the other thing about it was i i started going to parties then i i knew i mean we were living i was living with the drummer from the men they couldn't hang we were living on this boat moored in just by Kew bridge and uh it was traveler times you know we uh, men they couldn't hang were a punk band really and this whole traveler sound system thing had started up and you know we were kind of living on the fringes of that a little bit we were playing around london and the boat when we moved on there there was no electricity or there's no running water or anything like that so it's pretty basic lifestyle and we knew people who were in that scene who were crossing over from the punk world you know people who'd been into that kind of ethic that diy ethic uh but then they you know moved into this party scene uh and they were uh, all that was happening and the illegal raves some of them were illegal some of them weren't illegal nobody really knew what the status of them were but you know you'd go to these parties where people were just you know getting trolleyed and listening to this music and soaking it up and and the authorities didn't really know what the hell was going on and there was this and 
you know people knew that the authorities didn't know what was happening and that's was that's was part of the buzz it was reflected in the culture the fact that you know we were having this party and you know having a great time and the powers that be didn't really understand what was actually going on yeah and they didn't really care at first but of course the thing started to grow and people started to um you know develop their ideas and um eventually it sort of ended up in this kind of weird standoff thing but um i remember going out though to the to some of the early parties and what occurred to me about the music was the fact that it was going straight from the head of the guy who'd produced it out of the speakers whereas before you'd stand there with a guitar and a band and you'd have that kind of um, interface between you and the music and the people you're playing to and it seemed to me that um, what you were getting then was the idea coming directly through the speakers yeah and that really attracted me I loved the idea that uh, it was you know it was, it was an electrical impulse and it was coming direct from the head of the guy who's thought what you could do what he was going to do next and also the fact that you didn't have that physical um see i always thought it was great what 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 happened a lot of people it came in for a lot of stick right the early techno type scene dance music when it came because it wasn't being played mm. there was this kind of stigma about it but the thing is if you got it if you understood it and if you'd been out to a party then you obviously didn't have a problem with it and I never did I always thought it was great I didn't, it didn't matter to me that there was not an instrument or a traditional instrument involved it was like completely irrelevant as far as I was concerned and I love the idea that um, you know you could you hear these ridiculously long snare rolls for instance going into the drop or whatever mm. And I was thinking, well, why not? You know, all bets are off. You can yeah. do what you want, yeah. you know. And uh, so that side of it really attracted me. Yeah. The fact that it just, you know, the rules that you thought were rules were now no longer rules. You could do what you wanted. It was completely new. Like I say, that kick drum thing. Yeah. So I can remember thinking, well, there you go. I've been playing music all of these years and all of a sudden this kick drums popped out of nowhere you know i thought that was just an extraordinary thing really yeah amazing um and so alongside john digweed uh you guys together are obviously bedrock can you tell us about how you first met john and how you first started working together yeah i was playing in a band and the saxophone player in the band used to go and play in austria at the um in the ski resorts there in the winter that was one of the gigs that he had my mate sim and he knew john because john would do that as well like i say this is 89 90 again john would go to the ski resorts and do a bit of djing and uh he met simeon and basically simeon introduced me to john he said that he knew somebody that was starting to try and write in with uh computers and sequences and samplers and uh why didn't we meet up and so sure enough john turned up but you know these sort of things happen all the time but how was i to know that uh John was actually, you know, serious as he was about doing stuff. Mm. So he came in. It's just another one of those things. Music, you hear it's such a cliche. You have to be at the right place at the right time. But um, I was just, like I say, in a position where I could start to make uh, records seriously, do mixes. We had all the equipment the facilities with big desks and yeah. and all the gear and john was serious about what he was doing he was he just started doing stuff with sasha i think at that point so he had people interested in what he was doing i had the facilities to do it and the the other thing about john and i is that our roles are very demarcated you know he knows about djing and records and mixing and beat matching and, and i didn't know about any of that yeah 
And so he was able to show me properly what it was that he needed a record to do in order to make a mix. So it was just one of those, you know, happy accidents. I had the musical background and knowledge and facilities and he had the DJ Naus know-how and knowing what he wanted. So we just started and also because it was fairly, you know, it was fairly early on in the scene. Yeah. We didn't know where it was going to go. I mean, I think John is just still amazed that he's here 30 years later, still gigging around the world. I think yeah. I can remember him telling me this, he, how he knew he only had a certain shelf life and it would be about three or four years. And that was 1991, <laughs> you know. So it was uh, just one of those happy accidents, really. And so we did a couple of remixes and then we did our first original tune, which was uh, For What You Dream Of, which he grabbed with both hands and stuck it on the Renaissance Mix collection right at the top. Yeah, I mean, this is what you need to do. John is absolutely no, not bashful at all in promoting what he's doing and giving value to what he's doing. Uh, so he got the track and he featured it and he featured it just at the right time and that mix collection renaissance mix collection was the first big mix collection sold 100,000 yeah. and we were like wow it's yeah it's credited as the first live mix album that was ever ever created obviously yeah that's like up front right on there yeah um in terms of that track specifically what was the you know it's an absolute monster of progressive house it is almost the archetypal progressive house tune what was the kind of inspiration behind creating that what was the process that you and john went through and what inspired you to create it the main thing i remember about that is that we uh felt as if we had absolutely carte blanche to do anything we wanted to do we knew we were making dance music we knew it needed to work on the dance floor and Again, the fact that I've got the sort of rhythmic tendency when I make music, that helped with that. And also John knew it had to do certain things, right? But apart from that, we felt as if we could do anything that we wanted to, really. And so John would say, I don't know, try doing something with trumpets. And so I'd find some trumpets and bung them in. And then we'd say, well, we'll take it down there. We'll let that go for a little while. Why not try something else? You see what I mean? We had no, we, we had nobody telling us what to do. We were making it up as we went along. We knew we wanted it to be long, you know, fairly long track. We knew it wanted to be kind of a journey. Well, John certainly did. And then, and then we were getting to the end of writing it, and he said, "Right, I want some vocals on there?" And I'm like, "You're kidding me." <laughs> So we got in touch with Carol, who did the vocals, and um, ended up with that track. But like I say, we uh, we had complete free hand to do anything that we wanted, and that's what came out. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that we had. Um, it wasn't as if we were trying to copy anything particularly. I mean, you know, we were. There were things that we were listening to that we liked. But um, so. And John would turn up with some records. This is this is how it would always work. He'd turn up with some tunes and he said, well, I like the way that it does this. And so I'd listen to it and then try and recreate something. And in the grand old tradition, when you try and recreate something, it comes out a bit wrong or different anyway. Then he'd say, well, listen to the percussion on this. I really like the sound of that. So I'd try and do something which was a bit like that. And then you'd end up with the elements. And then yeah. it's a question of arranging them then. Yeah making sense of them which we were able to do amazing and uh, i mean that track as well it's been used in the it's to great effect in the clubbing scene and train spotting uh did you have any input in terms of that track being used in what is now like an iconic scene from an iconic film or are you just proud that it's in there just um 
it's an honour, and it's it's really pleasing to know that you've been a part of something that's part of the enduring part of the cultural landscape. You know, that's like it's just one of those things. Don't want to pat yourself on the back too much, but it, it, again, it was a lucky thing when they told us that it was going to be used in this in a film and that it was a British film. We didn't set very much store by that. Yeah, it's like fine, nice idea, you know. But of course, like again, it turned out to be train spotting, and it's you know it's a decent film, and it's uh, like I say, it made a particular point as well, and it's like a snapshot of what was going on then, mm. and uh, so obviously really pleased and proud that to be a part of that, yeah, and it's uh, it's one of those things that's you know defined us for a, for a few years and helped put Bedrock on the map. I mean, it was a party, Bedrock. That I think originally Bedrock was a club in Chicago, mm. and I think that's where John borrowed the name from. And he did his own Bedrock nights. But of course, when um, that track came out and got used in the film, then it kind of um, it it gave him something that he could use to post up everywhere and got the name around, and, and people were familiar with the name of Bedrock, and yeah. so it sort of took took it to the next level, really. Yeah. So that was great. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Awesome. Another track as Bedrock you've produced is Heaven Sent in... 1999 um just to cover off that i remember hearing that everywhere that year played by all kinds of different djs as well which was kind of surprising you had this era where it was kind of like the trance scene and progressive house and it's almost a little bit fragmented but had that real crossover appeal you know it's it's still an absolute anthem and it's had numerous remixes over the years when you produced that track did you set out the time to make something with such longevity or anthematic status or or was it just another track that you've made and you're kind of happy with and it escapes out into the world and becomes this <laughs> this beast well um we're trying to make big tracks you know yeah. it's like john john and i we that's the other thing is that we we've got you know very coincident coincidental ideas about music and the way that we want music to sound thing is 
it's um we like rocking music you know and and the rock element of what we do is kind of it's always been bubbling under the surface a bit john used to play john's like real big fan of uh, new order and that type of uh, sound um the electro thing he also used to play you know there's kind of indie type remixes that you get of uh, people like symbol minds and yeah that kind of thing. So he always liked his rock music, you know, not uh, heavy rock or anything, but that that type of um, British type of uh, independent rock sound and remixes thereof. He was always drawn towards that. And I had, you know, I'd been involved in that scene a bit myself. So the rock element of what we do is kind of in there. And so and we're trying to, you know, when we make tracks, we want to we want to try and give the crowd a lift, you know, and we, we don't like it to be too dreamy. Um, so Heaven Sent, we, we wanted to make a, a big sounding track. I don't even know if we spoke about it really, Matt, to be honest. I think I think I just I think we were just doing what we wanted to do. And uh, I would play him some ideas. Heaven Sent was one. That big riff that's in Heaven Sent, I remember what I did. <laughs> it's always the same when you're making tracks. If you ta- if you take it over the top, then that's normally right. That's <laughs> that's how it seemed to work for us. But Heaven Sent's got that big tune, that big melody in it, and I remember layering it and layering it with different sounds and sampling that, and then putting another synth on top of that, and then just making it sound as big as I possibly could. And uh, then, like like you say, you go past a per- certain point, and it starts to sound like something. Yeah. And uh, he'll hate me for saying this. I remember John saying, it's bigger than Foreign Angel. He said, Foreign Angel was um, Paul Van Dyke. Paul Van Dyke. Yeah. Now, of course, Paul Van Dyke and what Bedrock do have kind of parted ways a long time ago. But um, at the time, Paul was just coming up and he was making, you know, he was making a lot of uh, impression. Yeah. And uh, I think John was quite pleased that we'd come up with something that in his mind would compete with that. And also the thing that happened at that time was we, uh, uh, we'd we got um, a deal with Pioneer to run the label as part of Pioneer Records. And this was the first track for that deal. Yeah. So it was the first time that Bedrock Record Label had uh, released a track. Um, and we wanted something, you know, we wanted something to sort of kick it off. Yeah as in in the right way as we could and came up with heaven sent like i say i I don't know if how how planned it was but it's just you know let's try and make a decent record we came up with heaven sent i can't listen to it now man it's so fast it's so fast yeah it's so fast it's kind of of feels a bit uncomfortable to listen to it because well what happens seems to me i've i've kept track of this over the years when when we started making music this type of music we were down around about 120 121 beats per minute that felt okay and then i remember it the tempo that everybody was working at just gradually rose and rose and rose towards the millennium and uh like i say then it would we were 125 for about two years and then we were 127 for another couple of years then up to 130 and i think heaven sent is 132 and it's like, well, plenty of music at 132 now, but not in the style that we do. It's that, you know, that trancey type thing, the T word. <laughs> uh, but then after the millennium, I don't know if that's anything to do with it. I suspect not. But after the millennium, things seem to just calm down and go back down to about 125 again. Mm-hmm. We worked out for quite a few years around about there. And, um, and now 
122, 123. So it's almost like this elliptical curve over the last 25, 30 years. We've gone from, you know, we're back where we started at tempo-wise. It's a funny thing that if you get the energy right or the intensity right in the record, you, it seems to me you don't need to... I mean, the, the energy's all there. Yeah. And if you're putting that amount of energy into a track and you're running it 130, 135, although people do it, but to me it just sounds, it sounds um, like it's trying too hard. Yeah. Yeah, lose the groove a bit, you know. Mm. It's like you've got enough energy because the sounds that we're using now, everything's so up front, but um, you've still got a little bit of something that makes you uh, lock in to it, you know, when you're listening. I mean, there are still tracks I hear now, you know, new tracks that when I look at the BPM of them, I'm surprised that actually that's quite slow. You know, it's actually sometimes surprising. Like you say, if it's got a good groove and there's a lot going on, it doesn't really matter what BPM it is yeah there is something you know time is a funny beast it's like um you can be if you've got a bunch of people out in front of you going mad and um you're playing some quite intense tracks sometimes you look down and you you're like really i'm still 121 you know and you couldn't possibly think of going any quicker than that because you just lose the momentum of it so funny old thing time's definitely relative like they say Uh, so you as an individual as well nick um you do a lot of remix work uh officially and unofficially i i did catch your um edit remix of uh wolf alice don't delete the kisses right, which cool. was yeah I, you know i love that original track anyway yeah. and when it kind of came out on soundcloud you'd done a re-edit a re- remix of it i was like wow you know it's just like taking a track that i love and someone i really respect as a producer and you know it's really good but yeah it's term- in terms of that context when you hear something that you that you like for instance that track is there always the temptation to take it and put your own spin on it or you know how how does that come about in terms of you choosing what tunes you remix well that track in particular don't delete the kisses it had that little synth loopy roundy roundy riff which really which i really liked i mean i i guess you heard it too you yeah know, it's totally that, it's, that, yeah. it's that it's yeah. that sound and it's got that regular thing yeah so there's that there's and it's something you you hear and you just think to yourself i really like to hear that in a dance mix so i better do it then you know <laughs> and uh and the other thing is that um, sometimes they, you know, I mean, they're, I think Wolf Alice are a pretty cool band, really. And um, they've got that thing that makes them cool. And you want to be a part of that or you want to flag that up. Firstly, is the fact that you want to hear something in a dance context. And secondly, it's something that deserves to have it done. And that you might be able to introduce other people to something that they didn't necessarily know that they might like, you know, all that well, this just you know it's just stuff that you like good stuff that you want to that you want to translate to a dance floor it's amusing entertaining <laughs> <laughs> um and i mean you've remixed some classics um i'm thinking of things as as bedrock underworld's cowgirl mm. um you've done a remix yourself of orbital's chime bedrock mix of new order blue monday i mean these are all absolute titanic tunes of the genre does it ever worry you to, when you when you want to take on a classic like that and remix it are you ever scared of the of the thing you've got to scale or um, is it a challenge you want to do it justice i understand what you're saying um cowgirl i mean yes okay thing is cowgirl is it, well for both of us john and i that is a 
you know that's a classic dance track and it's like it's got you know i remember being there six or seven o'clock in the morning all sorts of states somebody dropping that for the first time and just thinking doesn't get much better than this that track in particular i was thinking well (laughs) what the hell are we doing remixing this why would we even bother you know Uh, thing is john john was a massive underworld fan back in the day i mean still likes underworld but when darren was playing with him then you know he was uh he always really admired what they did and the fact that they'd become a band and bought dance music into that kind of arena they didn't you know what what they what they did was very clever and very and and difficult and was never likely to happen and except for the fact that it did that's another story but anyway john john really wanted to do an underworld remix and finally managed to get the parts for cowgirl and we did our did our mix for it i remember a little story about that um norman cook did uh, his big what was it big beat boutique uh, yeah big beat boutique and he did that on the beach the, in Brighton. Uh, yeah it was the big beach boutique i think That's yeah it. and john played and there was you know whatever it was a lot of people on the front of brighton and i remember we drove down and i don't know it was, that was such a weird day. I mean, there was all sorts of people all over the all over the roads, but we I was with some friends and we drove right to the front and got into the car park. And I was thinking, well, how, how are we even getting into the car? I remember somebody waving to us, saying, there's a spot over here, you know, just normal car park. And, th- and that person was Chris Moyles, who was the BBC, <laughs> yeah. the breakfast show presenter at the time. And I think yeah. this is odd. So he was directing us into our car parking <laughs> spot and then got out of the car and walked towards the beach John was playing and I got onto the beach right at the back of the crowd I started making my way forward and at that point he dropped that cowgirl remix and so I was going right through the crowd up to the stage to get on the stage just to say hello have a drink or whatever but listening to our remix as I was doing it and that was a surreal experience yeah perks of the job Matt you know that sort of stuff yeah don't necessarily earn you any money <laughs> But it's just it's just a wild thing. Yeah. And I remember thinking that the mix was all right, actually. Worked, you know. Oh, yeah. T- uh, yeah, I remember hearing that in... Um, Ren- I used to go to Renaissance in Nottingham a lot. And hearing that in there on that Steve Dash sound system was <laughs> always a pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, listening pleasure. to most things on a Steve Dash well, system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, in terms of yourself, do you see yourself as a... You know, you play as a DJ as well around the world. Um, do you see yourself as a producer first, then a DJ or... Yeah, I do. Yeah. I really do. The way things have gone is a bit peculiar, really. Now, I've been DJing now for a while, best part of 10 years now, and I am uh, I actually kind of feel as if I'm getting a bit better at it. <laughs> it's uh, uh, And I, uh, I kind of know a bit better what to do now. I mean, I am doing... John, I do what John does, really. I construct a set in the way that John constructs a set. We like to build the thing, and uh, we like to get the momentum going. The subtle things that people miss... I can remember going to see John play at Club UK, which was in Wandsworth, about 90, maybe 4, 94, 95, maybe. But I can remember going, and I stood behind him on... And it was a funny little dance floor. I don't even think he was in the main room. Just this kind of circular dance floor with a few people you know this is a decent sized crowd but I stood right behind him and listened to the two hour set without him knowing that I was there just to uh, I just wanted to listen I didn't want to socialise particularly and didn't want to interfere with his concentration I just wanted to hear what he was doing and I remember thinking the way that he set up 
the trance, meaning the hypnotic thing that he does. And uh, the way that what he was specifically doing was trying to get that thing rolling along between records and making it so that you didn't notice the transition. All you noticed was the fact that the thing was moving along really well and took you with it. That was the idea. And, uh, I, you know, I was still learning about this stuff at, at that point. Even then, you see, the amazing thing about him is he's always known this is what he wants to do ever since you know he was a teenager and playing he he understood that the thing to do is you you need to try and set up that hypnotic groove and that's what he wanted to do and that it was possible to do this and also that it is a sound it's a sound he's playing a sound he's not necessarily it's the the records are kind of um obviously they're important but the amazing thing about john is that you can hear him play a record and for some reason it sounds different when somebody else plays it because of the context and it's because it's him and because you've got confidence in what he's doing and you know that he's knows what he's doing and so he can take a bunch of records which by themselves sound fairly normal and make them into something which sounds great simply because of the way that he moves through them and the choices of what he puts next to each other and I've got the hang of that now a little bit more I love the idea that what you're doing is trying to play a sound rather than um, you know it's not so much about the individual records although of course they're still important they're all parts of a big whole yeah. the whole just being a vibe and a sound like you say yeah yeah that's right yeah. and you know he was he was he's had this you know peculiar vision of it since uh, as long as i can remember yeah. he's always known where you know i was sort of kind of fishing around and doing a bit of this and doing a bit of that and i like the sound of this and i like the sound of that but he always had a very particular vision of how he wanted it to go yeah and of course, he's taken it and uh, spread it worldwide and done really well with it. It's admirable, really. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't, as a musician, especially somebody in my position, you don't necessarily meet somebody who you feel as if you have that kind of um, vibe with. It's not a given if you're mm. a musician. It's But you happen to come across somebody who's got a really valid idea, which you can understand and translate and help. That's been a really nice thing, you know, yeah. and that's yeah. why we've lasted as long as we have. Because um, uh, if he's if he's talking about music or doing some music, then I can normally understand what he's on about, and that, uh, I've not always, I've not always found that to be the case. <laughs> uh, he can he can say in a very few words what he doesn't like about a track, and I always know what he means. Like it sounds a bit too clunky here, or it sounds yeah. a bit too eat is a word he often uses. <laughs> If he says that, I know I'm in trouble. Yeah, I suppose it's like an actor working with a director, isn't it? You know, you, you get exactly. these people that have had those partnerships and it just becomes a shorthand working with each other in that way. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely say that his directing, I I'm not sure if I'm an actor so much. <laughs> the producer. Right, but his directing skills are, uh, I would say, certainly as far as I'm concerned, really on the money. Yeah, you know? and I mean, you mentioned that point where you were hearing your remix of Underworld and you're in the crowd is is there ever the temptation to play much of your own stuff in your own sets or do you try to avoid that or are you road testing things or how do you kind of build those um, what you play that's a good question the, th- the thing is you have you necessarily have a different relationship with track that you've made to uh, the rest of the stuff and I know more than one more than one DJ myself included that the temptation is to avoid playing your own tracks because you're a bit too worried about it and you're 
it's your track and is it having the right effect and oh my god i've broken it and it's yeah. me and it's you know because i'm not you, you have that bit of self-doubt about stuff that you've written because you're totally responsible for it but you have to get over that i think i think you have to play what you've made i think it's your duty to do it and i think if you're half halfway decent then it'll be okay and i did used to find it uncomfortable but i i'm better at it at it now yeah uh so and you know i think if you can uh, if you can play a few of your own tracks then i think you should do it and i think people like to hear it mm. mm-hmm. um but i do like djing though and i like listening to djs yeah. and i like and one of the things i like about djs is the fact that they play records that come from different sources if you do this live set thing which i've done a bit of mm. then the idea is that it's all your stuff yeah and for my personal taste i think you lose something from the entertainment if it's not if you're not picking stuff which has come from various different sources it's one of the great things about djing isn't it you can play a track from turkey followed by a track from india yeah. followed by a track from the states spontaneously as well just the, yeah. the time's right for this one yeah let's go yeah that's right i love the i love the fact that it's um a collaborative effort and you knit the thing together yourself we've been talking for for a while i don't want to keep you however but what we normally do is we ask all of our guests to submit five tracks to our perfect playlist which we're trying to build on spotify so uh based around five themes you know you've been really helpful and responded to us and given us the tracks your choices um i just want to get like a little kind of pen portrait of your experience with each one of these tracks as we go through so we always ask what was the catalyst the one track that first got you into into dance music and you've chosen express 2's london express can you just cast your mind back to when why have you chosen that and when was the first time you heard it what affected well i remember distinctly that particular track the thing is if you say what tracks got you into dance music then of course it's difficult because it was probably stuff that i didn't know what the hell it was (laughs) and i was out in a party and Mm. But what I can remember what happened was that um, people started to specifically go to see DJs. And then that was a new idea in the late 80s, early 90s. It was like you go and see a band, but it's like a DJ was somebody who played in a nightclub or whatever, Sinatra's. But then I think the, f- the first DJ I specifically went to see was Danny Rampling. Um, but uh, I was at Bagley's one night and uh, a bit worse for wear. And I can remember... London Express coming on and the way that that track sounded I was standing at the back yelling at the top of my voice you know classic and all this because I was a bit fucked you know but um, that track uh, I still think it's great it's the way the bass works Mm -hmm. it's and (laughs) You know, Rockin' Diesel, that is Express 2, yeah, unless I'm very yeah. much mistaken. They, they um, Again, they're not. these people are not necessarily trained musicians or anything, but they knew what worked. And you listen to the bass line of that track, it's kind of in the right sort of key, yeah. but it's n- that's not what it's about. It's the sound that the bloody thing makes. And that bass line with those cowbells and the way that the drop works and the way they get that build-up happening and then the bass comes back in again, it was uh, like nothing I'd heard before. And, you know, half three in the morning at Bagley's when you're worse for wear in 1991 or whatever it was, it was a great moment for yeah. me. So yeah. carry that one forward. Yeah, a real catalyst. Yeah, it was. And in terms of a floor filler chosen your own 
remix of Orbital's Chime. I suppose, as we kind of alluded to earlier, you know, how do you approach like how how did you approach remixing that? You know, it's a it's a Stone Cold classic. Well, you were talking yourself about doing a bit of re-editing and. Um, what we like to do, one of the things that we did in our productions, John and I, when we were starting, and he he used to impress this upon me, is the idea would be tease, us, tease stuff out. You know, don't give the game away too quick, that kind of thing. So what you're trying to do, and you can hear this in DJing sets, is just, you know, get that energy and work with it. And that's how I approached that mix. I wanted it something that was a bit longer, a bit more drawn out. But of course, the payoff with that track is so great when the uh, when the riffs eventually come in that um, you can really give it a, a proper billing. Now, of course, they didn't necessarily do that orbital when they wrote the track because, you know, it was their track and it was a new track and, they, and it wasn't an anthem when they wrote it because they'd just written it. But after having listened to the track, and there was that classic thing where they did play it at Glastonbury and they got the levels wrong and this, did this huge exposition of that riff. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, let's just kind of build that into a mix. Yeah. And also people have good associations with the track. So it's it's a bit of a cheap shot if you're going to be lacing your set with tracks like that but as something to just make the party rock even more and just get the uh the mood up a notch if i drop that mix then i find that uh, you know people are definitely on your side by that time yeah you don't want to give the game away too quick as i say but if you've worked with it for a little while and then or at the end or something like that you want to give some people something to go away with and feel good about so that was the idea behind that one we always ask for a sunsetter uh you chose an fc kahuna's hailing you know that track? Uh, yeah oh yeah it's um the the vocal the dreamy vocal the kind of almost backward sounding yeah. intro yeah well look the reason i've chosen that <laughs> It's because uh, it came to mind. We have done a remix of it. I don't know what's happening with the remix, but we've done one. It's ages ago now, last year. And uh, I guess they're waiting for the right moment to put that out again. But um, working on it like that with the stems and the samples and listening to it and you realize oh right okay this is you know, i knew the track anyway yeah. i mean uh, most people who are into the scene would know they'd, they'd recognize it but listening to it a bit more closely and working with it made me realize that um it's actually yeah a bit of a classic really just the atmosphere it's not too sentimental but it's at the same time emotional and it's engaging and the energy is there even though it's not an intense energy it's a really nicely judged track and above all it's atmospheric you know it has that all that in spades so i figure that you could play that as you're watching the sun do its thing in uh, outside mambo and uh, it would be a nice moment yeah totally yeah i remember the first time i heard it i remember pete tong playing it on the essential selection and he actually introduced it as this is completely different it's something that maybe i wouldn't normally play just check this out and i remember it just stopping me in my tracks mm. it's yes yeah, it's, it's beautiful like you say that that weird backwards sample when you're producing a lot of what producing is about really is, is the decisions you make mm. and uh you often listen to something and you wonder why the hell somebody chose what they did uh and you can't think why they would choose a sound like that but it just works so brilliantly well yeah and i really admire that if so if somebody makes a decision which at first seems an odd one but then after repeated listening you realize that it's you know the perfect choice yeah that's what producing is all about really yeah so recognizable as well that's really, right yeah um a, a tearjerker oh you know w- whether it be dance music or otherwise gavin Bryer's jesus blood never failed me yet 
I did find this on Spotify and I found it was 28 minutes long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did listen to it. It's it, it's incredible. It's haunting. It's really uh, one of those uh, goose pimply tracks. So what that is, is a, a recording of a down and out tramp years ago. I don't know when that recording would have been made, 50s or 60s. And uh, the story of it is, it's, it's a tramp, you know, hobo guy in England. Somebody was going around recording stuff and they recorded this old boy singing um, this song, Jesus blood never failed me yet and what happened was he got it back to the cutting room the editing room and had it on a loop a tape loop and it was just looping around just because somebody had left it looping around and he'd noticed that people were starting to sob when they heard this old boy singing this little song now uh, uh, there's something about the fact that he is a down and out and life has treated him unkindly and um, he's still singing this song about how things are really all right because Jesus loves me (laughs) and it's there's just something so it's uh, it's very sad and from this simple little voice he does this amazing string arrangement which which grows around the voice and takes it into an entirely new sphere and like you say it's 28 minutes long 28 minutes of that little you know whatever it is 16 bar loop of that boy that old boy singing but then this incredible string arrangement which just takes it and gives it wings and makes it fly as an idea yeah and uh it's that's a truly emotional piece of music okay well i mean we can move on to um uh, the last tune it's the end of the night the crowd asking for one more you've chosen rhythm is rhythm strings of life perfect to end on yeah, and uh, well, as I said to you before, I did a I did a rework of that again because it's uh, you listen to that now and the and it, there's so much it carries so much weight that record because it just sounds like the story of this music really the idea of the riff when it comes in the piano riff the way that that piano riff is constructed and it's unusual it's uh, emotional without being sentimental it's um, real feel-good track very recognizable and unusual but at the same time just really works and it's the uh, it's an american sound but that has translated across all nations and barriers seems to me also all genres as well you can hear techno djs play it progressive djs play it and all shades in between and uh, it always works and like i say i did i did a problem with the track playing a track that is 30 years old 25 30 years old like that the production values were slightly different then and i would have trouble shoehorning that into a set of contemporary tunes yeah. it sounds really lightweight when you hear it now almost yeah i mean it's it has its you know it's it's got it's got its own charm and it sounds great yeah but next to a lot of the tracks that i would play i wouldn't feel confident about playing the original version yeah john on the other hand would just play the original version although he's played the edit i've done a bunch mm. of times mm. And it does work. It's got the power. That's the thing. That's what we're kind of known for doing is this kind of rolling, powerful sort of sound. And so I did a version which makes Strings of Life do that a little bit more. But man, you know, it's uh, as classic as they come. Yeah. I remember seeing a documentary and Derek May said that he created that riff or the production in it in the sampler sequencer that he was using and he listened to it back and he had to almost turn it off and put it in a different room and because he was so frightened of it almost and yeah, to come that. yeah come back to it the next day and be like so what have i done what have i done what have i created <laughs> yeah and it's you know it's amazing that that you know sometimes you come back to it the next day and it'd be absolute rubbish <laughs> um but to know the power of it at that 
instantly almost. Yeah, and the, the, you've done something that you know works. Must do a few more of those myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so just one more question. Uh, we always ask our guests as well. Obviously, we are house culture. Um, this whole scene that's been created that you've had a hand in, in, in moving forward and pushing on both yourself, yourself with John as bedrock. What does this whole culture and scene kind of mean to you as a as a whole see the thing is it's um it's more than a way of life to me really it's kind of more i mean it's who i am you know because of uh, what my relationship to that music and uh, what i went through as we were making that music and you know my own sort of private uh, thoughts about it it's really interesting question to think about what might happen how long that sound might be relevant and i have no idea what one thing i do think about it is that um it's been oppressed really it's been sat on and part of the history of this music was that it was made illegal at one point now you know the criminal justice act and all the rest of it repetitive beats yeah now that that's extraordinary, yeah. you know, and I presume that's one reason why it's lasted as long as it has. Although I don't think it is the main reason, because I think the idea of standing all night listening to that music it does take you somewhere. I don't want to get too weird and wonderful about it, but the thing is, it will definitely take you out of yourself, and it definitely gives you a chance to forget about your daily troubles, and that's what I think people really like about it back in the day and think they probably still do now is the fact that you can um, you know the feeling you go out dancing all night and then you get out of the club and you think where have I just been you know you get taken somewhere and I think that is a real thing I don't think that that's some kind of imaginary sort of just semi dream type state I think it's um, uh, it gives you the opportunity to uh, get out of yourself and I think there's a lot of mileage in what that is but at the same time remembering that what we're doing here is a form of entertainment but that can be as entertaining as the next thing so like I say for me it's more of a way of life and uh, it has this sort of addictive quality to it house music that which is you know I, I don't know if that's a good thing or not but it is definitely there and I listen to other types of music but the thing is what dance music is that's the main event as far as I'm concerned and it means a lot to me I don't know whether it means the same to somebody who's 20 I and mean, the hip-hop thing is really big in our culture now and I know a lot of younger guys who are that's what they're kind of into and it has this punk thing about it the hip-hop thing and people expressing themselves in a in a lyrical way which is not quite the same as dance music whether that means that has supplanted dance music I don't know don't really think so but people who went through the 90s in the mid 90s i think dance music means something to them that it might not to somebody who didn't experience it then but i don't know that and i, I i'm not 100% sure that that's true either because i know a lot of younger people who live for this music and you know love it so something different might happen and it always does it always has done and it's always been technology led so we'll see but i knew at the time that this music was coming through and the and what the sequencer was doing what the computer was doing with it the fact that it took over the job of what time was it took that away your responsibility for holding that down and kept that groove going that was a big one i knew that was a big big change and it's definitely still rocking away so you know it's like i said it's a sound 
and I'm still trying to get it right. I'm still got ideas about putting a sound system up somewhere and doing it and making it sound because I think if you see if you see it under the right circumstances, you hear it under the right circumstances, then it's something else. The underground aspect of it, you can hear it on the radio, okay? But then you go to a club and you hear it on a system, you know, under certain circumstances. That's why it's underground because it works on two levels. There's the overground part of it and then it's the underground which you can only ever hear if you go out and experience it and uh, I don't know that's a powerful thing as far as I'm concerned so I'm in it for life which won't be long <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the perfect place to end it on that's brilliant okay, cool. yeah, thank you so much nice one mate cool House Culture that was great stuff wasn't it What a thoroughly nice chap Nick is and I can't thank him enough for welcoming me into his studio to chat all things music. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. There were a lot of tracks mentioned in that chat though, some of which aren't available on Spotify. So if you want to hear Bedrock's debut track for What You Dream Of, Nick's own remix of Orbital's Chime or the Bedrock remix of Underworld's Cowgirl, you can find all of those on YouTube. Unfortunately his own remix of Rhythm Is Rhythm Strings Of Life is unreleased you might just have to see him play live to hear that one. However, the tracks we discussed that are on Spotify can all be found on the House Culture Perfect playlist. These are London Express by Express 2, the original versions of Orbital's Chime and Rhythm is Rhythm Strings of Life, as well as the beautiful Hailing by FC Kahuna, which I cannot wait to hear what the Bedrock remix of that sounds like. Nick said they've done one, keep your eyes open for that release. If you want to hear Nick's tearjerker choice, Gavin Bryer's Jesus Blood Never Failed Me Yet, I'll just recommend immersing yourself in the full 28-minute version of that that's on Spotify. That has left a place open on our playlist though, so I've chucked in that bedrock classic Heaven Sent. So I'll say it again, you can check all of these tracks out and more on House Culture's perfect playlist on Spotify. Search for it, follow it, so not only will you not miss out on the choices from our podcast guests, you'll also get a regularly updated selection of beats that cover every facet of dance music. Once you're done there, please support us by subscribing, loving, liking, tweeting, sharing, and not forgetting to leave us a review. We'd always get you a shout-out on a future episode. This time around, a huge shout-out to the self-titled crazy uncle of house culture. Instagram's at I'm Instaboggle, real name Phil. He got in touch to tell us how amazing he thought our last episode with Greg Wilson was, and he totally agrees with Greg's outlook on how important it is to bridge the gap between the old and the young using the biggest beats of the day. Thank you so much for getting in touch, Phil. We at House Culture hope we can continue to keep our extended family all happy. And if you've got this far into the podcast and still don't know what House Culture is all about, we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. And what better way to celebrate with us than by hitting up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or by following the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally, you can reach out to me, Matt Rouse, directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. See you next time. House Culture. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.